0: Welcome to The Frenzy. I'm Melissa Carter. And I'm Jen Hobby. The Frenzy's mission is to
1: celebrate friendships over 40. We believe that women can thrive through authentic relationships, self-discovery, and spiritual exploration. Our decades-long friendship
0: continues to grow because we are willing to go there and share our truths through life's
1: highs and lows. That's why The Frenzy is here, to hold space for women who are 40 and older, because at this age, your story matters more than ever.
0: Friends, we are so excited about our guest today and are welcoming Allison Hare to the frenzy. Allison is the host of the Culture Changers podcast, where she says, screw the status quo. She talks with trailblazing pioneers who are flipping convention upside down and changing the way we live. Allison has a career path rooted in professional sales, technology, entrepreneurship, public speaking, and writing. She is also a mom of two and recently became a dance and strength instructor. How amazing is that? So Allison
2: Hare, welcome to the frenzy. Hey! What a great introduction. Thank you all. I'm excited <laughs> to be here. I'm excited to talk to you both. You earned it. Is that, was any
1: of that a surprise to you? Like <laughs> i was <I'm just> kidding. <laughs> I didn't make up any of it. I, I earned it.
0: <laughs> exactly. I, you did. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm so excited to learn about the culture changers podcast and the yeah. things that you've learned with all of your fascinating guests that you've had, but I guess I want to start with the seed of it. Why did you
2: get it started? Where did that come from? So much. So I know that your podcast really focuses on. I think it's women, right? Like women Mm -hmm. after forty. Yep. And when I turned forty, I had uh, my first son when I was thirty-eight, and I had a daughter through IVF at forty. And like right when forty happened, everything went bananas. And you know, like I started to, I started to notice some things where I was you know, volunteering at a local elementary school that, um, was for underprivileged kids. And I started to work with these kids where I'm like, oh my God, there, there's so much that if my friends knew, or if people knew what life was really like for these kids, instead of writing them off as bad kids, I don't want my kids around them, you know, um, it would be so different, like the systemic issues that that were going on there. And then there was so much political unrest and so many experiences that I had gone through through the, through the birth of my kids that could have been prevented if, um, if, if healthcare was done in a, a more patient-friendly way or mother-friendly way. And so there was like this perfect storm of things that were going on where I thought, I I need to make a difference, you know, and like voting once every two years didn't seem like it was impactful enough. And so I got a promotional email from Seth Godin, you know, like Seth Godin is this amazing thought leader that has this daily email that he's had for over a decade. And it was, you know, like, Hey, if you want to start a podcast and I I just, I I didn't even look at what it cost. I was like, yeah, let's do it. (laughs) I have a degree in broadcasting you know, that I've never really used. And so I just did it. I had no idea what I was going to say or what, what topic would be interesting or if it would work. And, uh, it just, it just took hold where, you know, like the culture changers thing. I think we don't realize how powerful we are until we open our mouths until we share how we're really feeling until we connect with others. And realize that maybe some of the old conventional ways no longer serve us. And there are new fresh ways and people that, you know, with the advent of the Internet are doing unbelievable work and they're doing it in their own communities. They're doing it on a, on a um, massive scale or a small scale, but all of those scales impact the world in a greater way. And so and that's how Culture Changers was born. I just think it, things can be done I wanted to be a force for good and I wanted to be able to scale. And that, that was how I started.
1: Well, and I think that you touched upon, I mean, there's so much to unpack there, but I think that there's Mm -hmm. some, you touched upon the fact that it seems that after 40, there need to be meaning to what you did. We talk about that a lot. One of the reasons Jen and I encourage women to share their stories is because, you know, your story, which I want to talk about the health issue uh, is so unique. And so when you put yourself out there and you bring meaning to what you do, you can change the world. You can change culture. Uh, all three of us here on the show, uh, have had experience with a fertility clinic for one mm. reason or another. Uh, and you, like you just mentioned, so if you don't mind my follow-up questions, digging deeper into what you said about things being more mom friendly, what did you mean by
2: that? So with my son, when I was, uh, 38, when I, when, He was being born. I had too much amniotic fluid. And so my OBGYN had recommended I get induced early. And uh, so it was like 38 weeks. And, you know, I was excited. And uh, long story short, I got pressured into a C section. And while so many people have C sections, it's very, very, very commonplace. What I realized afterwards is that you know, he was, he was born early and went into the NICU for nine days. I never got to latch with him. So I exclusively pumped for, for nine and a half months. And, um, I didn't get to hold him right away. I didn't get to hold him for two days. I didn't even know where he went, Hmm. you know, like they, they just took him away. I thought they were cleaning him. And I was like in the back, you know, after the C-section, after really, truly being pressured into it, but I had no idea you know, what the right answer was. And, um, it was just awful. And so when I got pregnant with my second, I, you know, asked, can I, can I have a VBAC? Can I have a vaginal birth after cesarean? And four doctors told me, hell no, you cannot. Can I say hell on the show? Yes. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> I've said, worse. Um, <laughs> <laughs> great. <laughs> I'm originally from New Jersey, so I'll try not to let any f-bombs <laughs> fly. But, um, Yeah. So, um, yeah, so, so with the second one, I had gone to all these doctors and I didn't necessarily want a vaginal birth. I just wanted a different birth. I wanted to feel like I had power or had control. And I, you know, went to this one doctor that looked at all my records. I was much higher risk. I was 40. I had a C-section. I had something called a myomectomy, which was um, uh, of fibroids in my uterus, so I had additional cuts in between. Then, where you know, like the the risk of uterine rupture, rupture was much higher, and so I I he looked at it and he's like, I'm looking at your records. Your body can stand the trial of labor if you want to, and I said, Well, do I need to have a C-section? And he's like, Do you want one? And I was like, What kind of doctor are you? You know, like, do I need one? <laughs> yes or no? And he's like, You. You have options. We believe in shared decision making here, and you know if uh, if you want to have a uh, family-centered cesarean, we will honor that. If you want to get an epidural, no problem. If you change your mind, you wanted to try natural, you change your mind. We will honor that, you know. But if some, we're going to monitor you closely, and if anything, uh, if I say at any point that you need a C-section you need one until then it's your choice. And through this process, I was so scared. I was just so scared. And, you know, like I was training my body, I was working out, I was mentally trying to prepare, like, am I, am I gonna, you know, am I being reckless? Because I'm trying to trust these doctors and all these other doctors told me no. And um, ended up having the most beautiful med-free vaginal birth that was so healing and so beautiful. And it was almost like a big F you to my first doctor, (laughs) you know, like it just was where I was like, you know, when I started to do research, I realized that, you know, 30 years ago, only 10% of births were C-section. Now it's like 33% and even a higher in Georgia. And so I started to learn that it was more on the convenience of the doctors, that if there's any elevated risk, it's much easier. It's much more predictable. It's easier for uh, the doctor, but um, harder on the parents. So I'm not anti-C-section. I am pro-choice. I'm pro-mom having, um, really having the facts and not being kind of pressured or scared into it. Um, And I had the exact same conditions with my daughter than I did with my son. So the, the too much amniotic fluid, I had all of that and was older and had more risk, but I was able to do it. So while my situation may be unique to me, I don't know, but I got the sense and started to realize from a healthcare perspective and from fertility that moms really need help. Moms really need to help with the identity. They need to help postpartum. They need to feel like they're not so alone. They need to feel like um, that that they're not, you know, failing because, you know, the, everyone else on Instagram and their friends seem to just be so unfettered and <laughs> look beautiful right. and their right. bodies pop right back. And, you know, they just have it all handled. And I just think that there's so much more that needs to be done there. And I would say...
0: Before even getting pregnant, you know, because I had similar experiences as you with C-sections and being encouraged to have them. Now, my first was because she was breech Mm. and wouldn't turn. So we went through a lot of those different options, but... Uh, But the second was going to be a V back, but then I was late. So everybody has a different experience. But what I'm saying is I very much connected to what you were saying about that and that you come into the situation unknowing. All you want is to have a healthy child. That's all you want is for the process to be healthy. And so you're willing to be directed by others very easily. So I almost feel like that education piece, that empowerment piece for mothers needs to come before you're ever pregnant
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Mm. because once you're pregnant, it's like the worry kicks in, you know, (laughs) I feel like the the education should come before that. Um, and the support should come before that.
1: Well, and I think that, you know, it's the communication with the medical professionals. And like you said, in, in incorporating the mothers into this, you know, just briefly in my experience, I did not carry my son because I'm a kidney transplant recipient and I was 44. However, we used a surrogate and I'm a, a, in a part of a, he has another mother. So a lesbian couple at the hospital, because the surrogate was giving birth, they were only going to allow one of us into the room because mm. that was their standard. The mother mm. gives birth and the father is in the The room. And so we argued with the, so the day that we were giving birth to our son, uh, we all were arguing with the hospital. You have to let both of us in. And they kept saying it's protocol. It's for safety. And even Mm -hmm. the surrogate was losing it saying, how in the world can you not allow both of these mothers in there? Finally, the, the hospital gave in and only allowed one mother in until the actual birth was happening. And then the other could be swooped in you know, because for them, I guess that that's what they thought was a good compromise. But still, we, it was a good two or three hours of arguing Mm, before his birth for us to be able to be in the room. So again, it's one of those things where you understand from the medical community, their perspective, their scientific perspective on all this. But at the same time, you have to court, you know, incorporate the family and, and the, the, uh, I don't know, the levity of this situation, this is their child being brought into the world. And like you said, there should be a choice for a variety of families and in a variety of physical conditions on how that takes place. The human side of
0: it. yes. Yes. It's like, they forget the human side of it. Right. So how does culture changers
2: address that? So I actually had my, I have a whole multitude of people on my podcast that are, you know, thought leaders, they might be political figures, they might be uh, uh, medical practitioners. I happen to have my, my OBG, the, the one that was so healing and wonderful. I had them on my podcast to kind of educate on when you are pregnant you know what are your options? What are your choices? And how does it differ from what we're told in society? What choices do you actually have? So, part of it, you know, like my hope when people listen to my podcast that people are going to think, "Wow, I, I didn't even realize that that was an option." It it just kind of changes the perspective and now i'm doing something where i'm doing mini series and so i'm in a mini series now which i'm so into and it is about belonging and especially as a woman in your 40s of making friends and what friendship looks like or even cults you know like people who want to belong somewhere and not that they are you know lemmings or uh weak or Vulnerable, but end up in these, you know, either cult-like followings or cults. It's it's just been so exciting. Social identities, you know, like like you, Melissa, when you when you are a mother, uh, a lesbian wife, all of those things, or a, a podcast host, a TV personality, a writer, all of those things have um, a code of conduct. That informs your decisions of how do you how do you move through the world, and so whether it is your political affiliation or any of those things. So I had um I had an expert on um on social identities. He uh, is a, a professor from NYU, talking specifically about social identities, but also how how do we like th- th- from the political perspective. It's really hard for us to communicate and connect and belong with each other like we normally were because of the division that has happened. So, how do you unpack that? So, it's just been really interesting. So, I'm trying to, you know, like take some of these monster problems, the ones that really hit us personally, and figure out how do we find a way out and how do we add our voice um, to the conversation where we can be an agent of change.
1: You know, Allison, I awesome.
2: I think that everything you just said is compounded with the pandemic.
1: You know, here we are mm-hmm. isolated in our homes. You know, and then some that are still being very conservative about being in their homes and not being back in the office or back in the restaurants or back in mm-hmm. the cultural activities. So, you know, from what you have have gathered in your mini series, I mean, what have you? You know, what are some of the lessons that you've learned about how we can move forward as older women? Coming out of this pandemic and how we can feel like we belong to each other and belong to the world, even to nature, because there's a part of me that mm. started doing more mm-hmm. nature walks and these kind of because it, it, I realize that so much of my isolation has been in the house rather than being outside and being, you know, kind of the core of where I came from.
2: Melissa, you're so right about the nature thing that you've seen RV sales have gone up and people looking to backpack or just kind of go throughout the nation or go throughout the world where people are, are kind of waking up to nature being part of it. I think through this belonging series, the part that's been frustrating is that the answer is belonging to yourself and feeling like you are, you don't need external validation and don't need to have this many friends or this type of friendship. And I think that we, you know, and I know me personally, I've, I've, I'm really trying to heal, you know, and, and trying to feel whole on my own that I do look at external validation and it, it drives a lot. It drives a lot. I'm very, um if any, if if you guys are into Enneagram, I'm like a three. So I'm all about productivity. I'm a three wing four, you know, I'm all about productivity and getting stuff done. And that is a very overused muscle, a very masculine uh, type of energy where I'm trying to balance to be okay to be quiet, be okay to be by myself and, and feel whole without feeling like I had to have belong all of these other places. So I think that is what the answer is really is to feel whole on your own. And that it's always a journey, right? I mean, it's not, you know, unless you're the Dalai Lama who probably has his own challenges, you know, (laughs) it's, it's an ever, 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 ever never ending journey.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. So true. So I saw recently you had a friendship coach Yes, on a recent episode oh of God. your belonging series. Yes. So I did not even know a friendship
2: coach. Me existed. neither. How,
0: how, what is that?
2: <laughs> <laughs> this girl was awesome. 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 She is a certified friendship coach. And um, I, I had heard about it a few months ago, and just I've I've been after her for months, and she finally said yes as I was kind of going into this belonging series, and it turns out that she um, she has a background in like PR and marketing. And started to see she was uh, teaching in a high school, and started to see how much people were struggling um, in a high school with their friendships, and she started to really, really dive into all the books and studies and got certified in this, and started to help people. And so she she told her family she was going to become a friendship coach. People laughed at her. They said, "You do what? How do you make money at that?" And um, she started doing these TikTok videos or reels. And I think one of them went viral. And all of a sudden, she blew up and started to offer coaching programs and has this amazing podcast. But it was very interesting where I had her on my show. And what I thought was fascinating is that 40% of people say they do not have a best friend. 40% 40% of people and that 98% of people feel lonely, even though they have friends. So I think to your point, Melissa, about the pandemic is so right that people do feel lonely. Do they do feel, you know, like a, as you emerge, I guess, back into the world now that people are vaccinated and things are opening up. Um how how do you emerge? hopefully better, more wise, you know, like kind of reevaluating, reassessing, you know, what is important to you and do your friends, are they the same, you know, or do they Mm -hmm. change? So it was just fascinating to learn that she said that, um, every seven years you will turn over half of your friends and which I guess kind of makes sense with stages and phases in your life. But, um, but so much of it was, uh, all I would say, all of it was really interesting. That you know, she talked about not you know when you see like the show Friends and people that would always be available every night to hang out at the the <laughs> coffee per the right. perk shop, whatever. You right. know, they never had other plans. Nobody was running late. You know, like they just <laughs> were always available to hang. You know, and I think the media has has kind of painted this you know, romantic thing of best friends. But she, you know, she said that any friendship worth having, you have to go through the troubled spots too. And so many people don't know how to confront people that, you know, and and maybe set their own boundaries or even like letting go of friends that have drama. This is just fascinating. Well, you know, as you spoke, it makes me think of two things.
1: One, you know, we all have children and you see the children at a certain age that they're friends with everybody. You just put them on a playground together, they'll figure it out. And then as adults, we have a harder time to do that. But then I also remember my mother telling me because she uh, observed the fact that once her husband died, you know, when my father died, that there were friends that left and it wasn't, Mm. it's because that. The dynamic was that she made friend they, as a couple, made friends with other couples. And then when that coupling changed, it it, it was awkward for everybody and nobody kind of knew what to do. So she wasn't as included. And so she was talking about how also in her culture, she gave up her friends to follow her husband. And so then she made friends with her husband. And anyway, as she got older, it was harder for her because all that dynamic was done. Her high school friends had all sparced out. And then, you know, her couple friends had all sparced out. And to your point, you know, we usually are friends with our environment. So work mm-hmm. dictates our friends. So when you mm-hmm. talk about how you transfer your friends every seven years, to me, that correlates probably with a lot of people changing jobs, right? Because yeah. you're there all day. So you end up making friendships with, you know, your coworkers. And in the pandemic, some of us, so much of us has been working from home that mm-hmm. you don't have any friends. Right. And so, yeah, moving forward, I could see we're a friendship coach, like Jen, I didn't know that even existed, but I could see Is a that space cool? for it.
2: <laughs> to be I high, was, on, but I was bowled over too. Cause I, I posted something on social media on the stories and, and asked like, what are you struggling with? And was bowled over with how many people, you know, were, were saying this, it, it felt so urgent and it felt so private, both men and women. And I'd be, I'd be interested to learn about both of you guys, you know, knowing what you know about friendship, but raising small children with friendship, how do you, how do you help guide them as they kind of navigate their own friendships through your own lens? I just think it's like a, your own sociology experiment in your family. I'd, I'd love true. to know. It's true. Well, I think like Melissa
0: said, it is so, um, heartwarming to see kids because anybody they spend time with for a little while becomes their friend. Um, and I think that mine are young enough now that they still have that. My oldest Mm -hmm. is a third grader and I think she's on the precipice of the clickiness of girls. So we're not there yet. Um, And, you know, we've just talked about really making sure that you make people feel good. And that you make people feel included no matter what it is that you're doing. So that's the major conversations. I will tell you one side story is that, um, my children have cousins who don't, don't speak English and we went to visit them this year in Switzerland. They are all French speaking little kids. Okay. There's three of them in one family, one cousin on the other side. (laughs) And it doesn't matter to kids. My kids speak English and no French. Their kids speak French and know English, but they played together for a week and Mm. had a blast and really got to know each other and started to learn the other language and really got along. So it showed me that it's really at what your heart center is and where your energy and your joy is that helps you connect to other people. It's not even language. Mm. So that was a sidebar. But um, Melissa, what do you think with encouraging Mr. Carter to
1: how old is Mr. Carter now? He is seven (laughs) <laughs> oh my goodness. I can't believe he's seven. Uh, my joy. And, uh, you know, for him, he is very um, observant but, and he's a rule follower, which means that he will be the tattletale. Like he's the one that has, <laughs> to, I, I I see him be a dictator, right? To like making sure everybody follows the rules. And so it's one of those things where I don't want to... Come in and and give him too much feedback because he's got to figure this out on his own. But I can see where that's a struggle because as he gets older, kids are going to be like, you know, I, I, why can't we just relax and and not have these hard set rules? But um, but currently he like, it, it, I mean, he's just friends with everybody. Um, he already knows who he's going to marry, so there. Understands <laughs> the the levels of friendship where oh, he is cute. his core girl. Um, but yeah, I think that what's interesting is I can already see as an adult, the personalities of him and his classmates. And I, to Jen's point, I can see what that might look like as teenagers yeah. already, because I have that experience. Right. And I can see, oh, well, this isn't going to work. They're not going to work, you know, and they're going to be tied or whatever. And of, of course, that's from my perspective. It may not turn out that way, but it is interesting how hormones change everything and sexuality changes so much mm. and to the point of my mother earlier a lot of the women in those groups did not want her to be a part of the groups because their husbands would pay attention to her because she was the widow that n- needed to be taken care of so she had her friends were jealous of the attention their husbands were giving her and this is we're talking about 70s and 80s year old. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter it never how old ends. You are, it never is. <laughs> right. But I was always fascinated in my life how much sexuality dictates our relationships with people. And, it you know, in, in that case, it is women being friends with other women and, you know, those dynamics. So, yes, to me, mm. hormones and sexuality is the the difference, is, is the difference between us now and when we were in elementary school.
2: Now, you know, Allison, how old are your kids? They're eight and six and okay. i i have a sidebar story and i wonder yeah. if you can answer a question for me on this so i uh, a couple years ago i took my kids to um get family photographs so we're like running around in a field or whatever and so the photographer had a son exactly my son's age they had never met before and it towards the tail end of the photo shoot her son was coming in and my son saw her kid and they immediately noticed each other and ran to each other and started playing immediately, never met. And I remember the photographer saying, why can't we be like that as adults? And that has kind of carried me. And I wonder how would you answer that question? At what point does that go away when you, when people are no longer safe? I think it's about
0: being less open, right? We all get hurt along the way. We become Mm -hmm. a little bit more protective of our hearts I I think that's probably why to me is that, you you know, with experience, you get burned. And so you're not quite as wide open, you know, and you don't want to get judged either because if somebody walked into my office
1: building and I went running towards them, (laughs) they would think I was totally a looney
2: tune. (laughs) true.
1: Yeah. (laughs) No, I, I agree with Jen. I think at some point we went from not being afraid to being afraid of the world. So I Mm. think that, you know, Jen and I have recently had this conversation where, you know, children coming into the world, um, they don't, they're not prejudiced. They're not angry. They're not Mm. like, it doesn't matter what somebody looks like. They want to, you want to spend time with them. We teach children about difference. They don't come into the world looking at difference. They come into the world looking at opportunity. And so at some point we felt the need to take that protection of children a step further. So like, you know, racist parents will say a child of a different color is unsafe. So don't hang out with Mm -hmm. them. You know, like you mentioned earlier about special needs, you know, whether it's, you know, behavioral or, or educational or whatever difference where they may not be on the same scale as other kids. Somehow we teach our children safety and especially with girls, you can't go out by yourself. You can't Mm -hmm. dress that way. You can't all of a sudden we get inundated with how we are a target for the world. And I think that we do our girls a tremendous disservice by that thinking we're protecting them. And all we're doing is giving them a life in which they have a hard time navigating through it until they usually reach, you know, our age after they're the age of 40 Mm -hmm. and they start unwrapping all that. But yeah, I think it's see. I think it's fear. Somehow we become fear-based. Um, and I think it's a shame.
2: I had somebody on my podcast. Her name is Cindy Robinson. And it, as part of the belonging series, she was, I asked her, where does this begin in childhood? And her answer knocked me on my butt. And she said, it happens the moment parents say, no, you're wrong. Meaning if you know, Uncle Jimmy comes in and you tell your child, go, go hug Uncle Jimmy. I don't want to go hug Uncle Jimmy. No, I don't don't want to go hug him. You don't want to offend him. And that it's, it's like their own little intuition that every time you redirect from their intuition that maybe they, they, you know maybe maybe they're afraid of that person maybe he's a creep maybe he's fine he just you know like they're not comfortable with older people who knows you know and i thought that was really interesting so i'm i'm starting mm. to kind of look at a different lens of how how can you allow your child enough autonomy to make their own decisions but the moment you keep redirecting and telling them no your intuition is wrong is when that belonging starts to break mm. isn't that wild wow Well, that makes sense because there's a disconnection
1: there with your parents, right? I I think the moment that you don't feel seen by your parents is very impacting on a child. um, Even if the parent doesn't realize that's what they're doing, right? And that sounds like what that is, where you don't see your child for what the child is trying to tell you. And, you know, and then the child, I don't know. I could, yeah, absolutely. Because I'm sure in my life. I was the youngest by far and I was the oops baby and I was, (laughs) you know, kind of discarded a lot because my parents were so overwhelmed by their teenagers. And I definitely have had to deal with the idea that there was a perception in me that I was not seen. So I didn't belong in this family Mm -hmm. and I'm still Mm -hmm. to this day, you know, now my parents are gone and all that's left are me and my siblings. And there's a, it's a hard process for me because it's like, I don't feel as connected as I should. I don't feel as uh, that they don't feel like a tribe to me, and they should. It's what I feel and then what I should feel, right? That I'm still dealing with. Y'all, we went deep. (laughs) (laughs)
0: for sure for sure okay so Allison I want to talk about age because here on the frenzy we say you know stop lying about your age all the time how is your age an asset for you
2: oh I've never been asked that question and have never thought about it so let me see if I can answer it on the fly I just turned (laughs) I just turned 47 and I remember Knocking on the door at 40, kicking and screaming and so (laughs) upset. And I think at that time I was also doing IVF and was trying to have my second. And once I got pregnant, I got, I, I started to calm down with it. Um, you know, it's something I struggle with and it's, it's something I struggle with because, I do have the Botox. I do have the fillers. I get my hair colored every four weeks. I have le- lash extensions. I mean, if people say, "Oh, you know, so and so, whatever looks good," I was like, at this age, if it looks good on me, it's probably fake. And so, <laughs> well,
1: <while, laughs> I, I don't that you talk about that honestly.
2: <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. You know, I've got, I've got, I've had work. You know, all that stuff. And I, I would love for it not to matter but it does, you know, it does to me. And, and that doesn't mean I judge other people for, you know, whatever they choose to do. And, you know, to some extent I enjoy, you know, like getting pampered and, and kind of doing all those things, but it's a lot of work. It's a lot of maintenance. It's a lot of money that I wish I could. Um, I wish my energy was placed elsewhere, but it is what it is. And I am fighting it every step of the way. I think from a from a body perspective, I mean, I became a dance instructor after never dancing before during the pandemic at 46. So I feel- I love that. I do too. I feel great and I feel awesome. So I don't wake up with aches and pains and creaks, you know, like I really do take good care um, of, of my internal body as, as best I can, um, other than some dark chocolate and fruit by the foot, which <laughs> have been my pandemic diet. <laughs> But that's I don't. The, you said dark
1: chocolate, now Allison. <laughs> I mean that's antioxidant Yeah, exactly.
2: <laughs> so I am. I can be as vain as I can be deep. You know what I mean? But it is. It it it's there, and it's something that I I, you know, wish I could maybe appropriate my energy elsewhere. But but it is. So it is something that I openly struggle with. I don't know. What about you guys?
0: probably for, I I see you as short time as we've met, is that I think your age allows you to go deep quickly and gives you the confidence to ask those curious questions, right? It's that um, wisdom that has come with time, I think, that allows us to be as curious
2: as you are. I do think that I don't struggle as much with asking questions and I've always been a, a chief question asker, <laughs> you know, I've always been very curious, but I, I would agree with that. But I also think, um, you know, this year, especially I lost my mother, um, earlier this year and I feel like, and, and I know Melissa, you've lost your parents. I, Jen, I don't think you have, I think you still have. your I, parents I'm yet. lucky. Yep. They're still here. Yeah. And so I, I don't know if this is unique to me um, or Melissa, you might relate, but I feel like after losing my mom and my mom's death was beautiful. It was as as good as you could possibly imagine for a death, um, which I'm grateful for. But I feel like there are layers being shed that I didn't even know I had. And so I feel a lot more raw and emotional um, from you know, like, so I can get deep, but also I, I feel like, um, and, and part of the, the impetus for the belonging series is because I realized through my own son, who is a highly sensitive person, he's a highly sensitive kid. And I started to realize how he would get really hurt when he would be, um you know excluded from this group or some he he might get picked on but he would just be destroyed and when i started to to see him that way i realized i'm like that i just have hit it for so many decades yeah. for as long as i can remember you know i felt so rejected. So I have like, I'm an extrovert and most of my close friends are introverts. So I get hurt all the time. (laughs) They're like, no, we're not going to hang out. And I just would never say, you know, I would just kind of intellectualize it, you know, and kind of a left brain it. And of course it's not me, but it, it just would kind of hit and ding. And so I, it feels more raw to me. It feels more, um, and and that, that's kind of how this whole series beca- began because i was i realized how hurt i am all the time but but would always just plow right over i just would never acknowledge it i didn't even notice it enough cuz i would just kind of put my social constructs my social identities of you know being the cool girl and just everything is fine <laughs> and i don't want to cause drama you know and and i know it's not directed at me it just hurt And so that, that's, that's kind of, that's kind of where it comes from.
1: (laughs) Well, I love the vulnerabilities, like Jen said, you're Mm -hmm. able to do it without being ashamed of it, to be vulnerable. Mm -hmm. Um, And also congratulations on being aware of your child because highly sensitive people need people who understand them or at least Mm -hmm. have empathy for them because. It's a gift. It's a gift that is that way. Yeah, you can do far more damage by ignoring the fact that he's highly, especially as a boy, um, you know, in this day and time. Hopefully that won't matter in the future. Uh, but also, I mean, I, you know, with the loss of my mother, and I've said this on the show before, that I had the hard realization that I had to become my own mother. Mm. And that's been the hardest thing. I lost my mother over a year ago, a year and a half ago. But still, I mean, it's it, there's not a day that goes by. That there's not this, I don't know, it's raw. It's just a very raw, um, right to the core moment that you, that I have learned to embrace. But it's the, those are the moments where I wish I could call my mom. I wish I could ask my mom for advice. Mm
2: -hmm. And so I
1: have to ask myself for advice. I have to, you know, I have to be my own mother because that safety net has been taken away. But that's that's part of life. And by doing so, I can be a better mother to my son because, you know, instead of delegating that final soothing, you know, to my mother the self-soothing now has to come from me. Right. Mm. Nobody's going to come to my crib and, you know, take care of me. So, um, but in doing so um, again, I think that I'm, I'm, I don't know. I'm a better parent. I'm a better um, parent to my son in that. I'm in the moments I'm in the moments because it's, it's just me, you know? Um, And I think that as we get older, that's going to happen. So, You know, if if the cycle of life goes as people hope it goes, which is the older, you know, the parents go first before the children. And, you know, that's a privilege to to have your parent go and not have them have to see you go. Sure. Um, But your friends pass and, you know, life changes so dramatically. And I think for you know, it can be a scary time, you know, for our lives to be in this state and will only continue to be in the state as we get older But at the same time, there is a comfort and I don't know, it's, it's hot. I I don't know. I've always been fascinated by death. So, and my friends make fun of me for it (laughs) because I find it comforting. I don't find it scary. And I Mm. find it, um, I find it going back to getting back to nature and getting back to connection and getting, I think there's a connection to those who have passed that have, there's not a disconnect you can't, you don't see them anymore. You can't talk to them. You can't hear them. But I think there's a connection. And so I think as women, as we get older, I don't know, I think this whole, you know, almost um, environmental feel of we're all one, we're all connected, to me, has just intensified rather than been deconstructed, if that makes sense.
2: Melissa, do you feel you are more connected with your mother? Do you feel like you search for that connection? I feel as connected. We were very close. so I feel as connected. Um, I
1: feel mm-hmm. more connected to my father who I didn't have a big connection with. I, I think that it, I think, yes, That's fascinating. I do. I feel mm-hmm. there's a warmth. It's like a, it's like a warmth around me all the time. And so I can go to that. Um, even though I can't call them, it's hard to not be able to have the conversation to hear the voices and to, you know, get the hard advice or to, you know, for me sometimes, and people know this, I, I overthink things. I over, I over, analyze things and for them to snap me out of it, you know, um, but still there's a reflection on them. That's very, it's, it's a positive thing. It's not never been a negative thing for me. It's been hard. I mean, it's a, the guy leading up to their departures is the biggest gauntlet, not after once they depart. It's to me, it, that's not the hard part It's before.
2: Hmm. Interesting Allison, perspective.
1: Yeah.
0: Was that similar for you with your experience with your mom? yeah she i
2: I feel her so much. I wish like i I want her to haunt me, but she does like I don't <laughs> see butterflies. you know what I mean? like i'm I'm waiting to see like a a garbage pail full of pennies or something, so I know she's there. Um, I don't feel that. It feels more like a calm in my solar plexus. Like I feel like she is so much better and so much more complete and whole. and she kind of resides right here. And that, um, I, I don't feel alone, despite all that stuff I just said about feeling lonely <laughs> like, and feeling hurt all the time. I don't feel alone. I feel like she's with me. And I, I, you know, my mother suffered for like 10 years with chronic issues, you know? And so when when she passed and because it was so beautiful, because we were all there, you know, I'm one of seven kids and my, my mom and dad had six. So we had five of us in the room with her and the other one on the phone. Um, And it just was beautiful. And that, you know, I, I felt like um, I felt like in that room when she was transitioning, when she was passing, it felt like I felt the power of our family. I felt it like viscerally. I felt um, I'm getting chills now thinking about it. I felt this power and this connection that we were going to be okay that we had, we were so strong because we had each other and because it started from this woman, you know, who loved us so much and so powerfully and that, that it just, I'm very grateful of how she went. I know that Mm -hmm. sounds weird. Maybe Melissa, no. you and I can start a death club because I'm into it too. <laughs> look, look, well, and it is a club. That's the next podcast yeah. series, you know, the Death
1: Club. I death know, Death and
2: Dying series, Death and you know, Dying.
0: I, oh God,
1: I, I know it, but I love the topic. Um, but. Yeah, there's definitely a club of people who've Ooh. lost their moms for sure. Especially, Y'all they're both making them. me tear up. I'm like, we
0: <laughs> <I> need <laughs> to talk about roller coasters and puppies.
1: But, and but
2: rainbows. I know.
1: But the thing is, too,
2: though, Gotta I am a call her. I know, right? You're so but, sweet,
1: Jen. <laughs> but the thing is, too, like you, you just mentioned about the the power of family from this one person. You, you know, oh, and, and for those legacy who, who don't even who don't have children, again, I'm a, I'm a proponent. So you know, not all women need to have children. And if you sure. don't have children, you shouldn't feel bad about it but it's just the you know going back to your culture changers I mean it's all to me the same topic where you know you you make an impact on the world right your your life matters you're here for a reason like we've all again done the fertility clinic thing and that the biggest thing in getting my son here was learning that most we are all um we're not the norm you know most IVF if you notice it doesn't work it took us three cycles to get our son here and some who never get their child here even going through various cycles and so that shows you how in nature there's so many times that there was almost pregnancy almost pregnancy or you had pregnancy and you miscarried never knew it because it was so early in we are the exception to the rule the people who are actually living you know made it through all kinds of odds and so I believe we're here for a reason and maybe it's not just one but you, you definitely make an impact you have a ripple effect just by being alive and I think that us talking about our mothers whatever it is you do uh and the fact that you were doing this you know you're changing the culture of different things you're making an impact in those ways like and I just wish that women understood that we're not just you know when we're here to serve others it makes us the sun right? It makes us the source. It makes us powerful, not weaker because of it. And I feel like for some women, they feel like they've sacrificed too much in order to do for others.
2: But how much do you think that women from a societal perspective have been diminished in a way where I'll I'll take for an example only because it's popping up in my head is that I have friends that are stay-at-home moms that dread the question, oh, do you work? Oh, do you work outside the home? Do you do anything besides raising these humans? <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? And there's such a devaluing that I feel like there are so many micro infractions that we as women may hear our whole lives, that we don't know that our voice is as powerful as it can be or our thoughts and the things that we want to help and change. And that was kind of the catalyst. I mean, I never cared about any of this stuff before I turned 40, you know, like I, I I see people who are teenagers and they're talking about changing the world. And I was like, when I, I was just trying to get a boy to like me, you know, (laughs) I was just watching MTV, you know, and it it just, it's so different now. I just think everything is, is changing that I wonder, I mean, Jen, you're a mom of two girls. Do you think that those girls and even, uh, Melissa, you having a, a boy that is treating a girl a certain way, I think post Me Too, I wonder if our girls, our little girls and the girls that you, your children influence are going to be so different or have a much different experience, hopefully a better experience, a more empowered one than uh, than we had growing up.
0: And it's all because of us and our generation leading the way. And it's because of our mother's generation leading the way for us, because if you can see it, you can be it. If we're going to set up different parameters than what we're set up for us. And so I absolutely agree with you. I think they're going to be different little story of a friend of mine who is an ER doctor. Okay. So she takes care of patients in the ER. Um, she is, uh, her their last name is Miles she is Dr Miles and her husband is Mr Miles okay so doctor and mister um, don't get it are, twisted right our right. great friends of ours and we're all raising kids together and she said she took her daughter to work they had like a take your daughter to work day so she took her into the ER and then they were in the locker room, um, you know, where the doctors keep their things. And then they went into surgery and she showed her that. And then she went into this and showed her that and had introduced her to all of her doctor friends. And her daughter at the end of that said, mom, can boys be doctors?
2: <laughs> I
0: love it, Because <laughs> everybody she met that day was a woman and was a doctor. So are we changing the narrative for the next generation. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Well,
1: well, and we still have challenges though, because you still have people who are traditionalists and not realizing that they're doing this. So my son from the beginning, his other mother and I, it was no blue at the baby shower. We don't, you know, we're not the pink Mm. and blue and all this stuff. We, we, You know, every time he talks about God, I always say he or she, because he, you know, uh, try to let him know that God is not necessarily this big dude that's passing judgment over everybody. Uh, When he loves the white beard in the sky. Yes. Just sitting at a desk watching us, Um, you know, the gamers, you know, he's a big gamer. And so all that he sees are boy gamers. But I always say, well, you know, there's girl gamers too. And I play video games with him and I try. So I'm always trying to interject in his mind. The fact that girls do it too. Girls do it too. So we were talking about, you know, the colors one time and pink came up and he said, is that a girl's color? And I said, anybody can do pink and anybody can do blue and all this stuff. Anyway, he comes home from school the other day and something pink came up and he said, well, I can't have that because it's pink. Hmm. Now that's not my influence. That's Mm -hmm. somebody else's influence. He He heard the guys at school say that because somebody's dad or mom had said that and, just perpetuated this whole thing and i had to correct him again and i've even put my foot down in and to tell him ba- they basically you have two mothers i don't want you ever coming in here and telling me a girl can't do something or is not a part of right. something and that will be it, it you know and i'm like but that goes the other way too boys can do anything a girl can do as well so i try to not make him the victim you know or the bad right. guy it's the it's balanced but i know that already at seven years old He's you know there's learning, something if right. it's a girl thing mm-hmm. I can't be a part of it and it's like you know here we go again it's just it's like jen said those of us in our home have a huge influence how we discuss stories on television how we discuss sitcoms and what we see in sitcoms the little jokes you make are so impactful to your child that mm-hmm. just be careful about what you're saying because does it sound
2: sexist then don't teach your children to be sexist that way my um Husband has been. I'm not proud of this, but my husband has been showing my kids South Park because they think I'm Butthead. I love South
1: hilarious. Park.
2: And my daughters, my daughter is like, "Daddy, what are sluts?" <laughs> you know? oh, no. oh no! Oh no! It's You're great like, in okay, our house.
0: Opening up some conversations you weren't prepared for. Oh, well, my I will
2: say, my you know, my daughter asked me. They said mommy, what does pussy mean? And I was like, (gasps) so my husband and I, my husband and I were like dodging, they were dodging our kids. Like, Oh, you know, and we ran away and I was like, no, 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 I I'm going to, you come back here. I'm going to tell you. So I got both my kids and I was like, here's what it means. It's a horrible word, you know, and, and here are the implications and they're like, Oh, and you know, like we, we thought about it and we're like, we can't, like, we, I would rather them hear it from me than hear yeah. it from their friends and have it be vilified in some way. You know, like that, if, if I, I have to be there for those conversations, if they present itself and not just giggle and run away. I didn't know how to handle the sluts one. <laughs> I think my well, husband, oh my God. Look, <laughs> I don't know how to handle that one. Good oh, for those, you though. That comes at you quick.
1: Wow. But good, <laughs> good for you for, having that conversation like you said so many parents would not want to have anything to do with that like it's hard for me to get my son's grandmother to say penis because I tell her it's okay (laughs) to say penis because she doesn't know what to call that and I'm like well you don't you call that a penis it's not that (laughs) but also I have been given the responsibility of giving the talk his other Mm -hmm. mother doesn't want to give the talk Um, You know our donor you know our sperm donor he was somebody that who is a friend of ours who he was given the responsibility but when he gave the talk to his own children and their friends he included in the conversation about whether they it was all boys whether they slept with girls or boys like he made sure Mm. in case one of those guys was gay. That he was Sometimes. he felt included in the conversation. And that's something nobody thinks to tell their children about, especially if you're straight parents, you never think twice about talking about the birds and the bees. But some of your kids are bees and bees and birds and birds. And so that should be a part of the conversation. Even if it doesn't apply to your child, they will accept friends who are gay. If you say in the conversation to them, look, whether you choose to sleep with a guy or a girl, you should use condoms. You should do this. You should do and just let it just be part of it. Don't make a big deal out of it. It's just whoever you choose to sleep with so that they know they have a choice. Right. In the way that they feel. And it's okay. So anyway, I just think that we have to really if we're going to make that change that we have to do differently. You Different results come from different actions. And if we don't want the same old thing, same old prejudice, same feeling of exclusion... Then you have to bring it upon yourself to have those conversations in the home, and I commend you for that. Good for you. I know that took a lot of bravery. Well, <laughs> but I did it.
2: You know, but I also live. So I live in Old Fourth Ward. So I live in. Uh, if if you're listening, it's a, a really cool part of Atlanta, mm-hmm. and it's a very very mixed neighborhood. So we have gay, straight, mixed couples, mixed race. I mean, you see all of it everywhere, and um, and so everything is normal. I've been wondering. When you think about prejudices, how do you change it in an area where everybody looks like you in a homogenous area? So if it's the suburbs, the exurbs, the, you know, rural areas, you know, and I, I don't know the answer to that. The only thing I can think of is is media. Like the more mm-hmm. if you look in commercials, now they have so many more mixed race couples or they, you know, like Target has cards that are um like for, for mom and mom, you know, and, uh, they, they have more, uh, inclusive cards, but it's not enough. And so I don't know if you've ever given that thought, but I, I wonder, cause for me, it's, you know, it's, it's just where we live. So it's easy to have those conversations. You know, we have a, a next door neighbor that is a, a gay couple. They have three kids, you know, and they're two dads and, and, It was an easy conversation. There weren't any questions or like, really? What? There's no mom. It was just, oh, okay. You know, just because that's what we're, you know, we're around. So I don't know if there's an answer to that.
0: I mean, I think it's about how you model it in your life with your friendships and in your reactions to things. Um, And I do think as someone who was a city gal who has now moved to the suburbs, the suburbs across America are a lot more diverse than I think they're given credit for. So, uh, Melissa, you're in a burb that is very diverse. I mm-hmm. am in a burb that is very diverse. So, at least where we are in the country, I feel like even the suburbs are very blended, whether, or whether that comes to a sexuality, sexual orientation, or race, or anything. And so, I think no matter where you live, you'll be presented with the opportunity to have those conversations. And mm-hmm. I think it's about how you handle them
1: I agree. in the moment. But I also think media is important. You know, I do think it can be enough because I reflect on the fact that I grew up in a very... I grew up in the burbs of a very small town and everybody looked the same, but my parents laughed as loudly to Sanford and son and good times as they did to any other white sitcom. And I know that sounds crazy that that would have an influence, but it did mm-hmm. because my parents weren't huh. racist and they, their lives it's hard to explain but it was on hindsight that I look back and I we had so much potential to be racist we had so much potential to be small-minded people because we lived in a small town they came from a small town like we fit this we fit the stereotype but my parents were not that way and their parents were not that way and so they raised us to not be that way and so I think that um for me, watching them, watching media, watching their reaction, hearing their conversations um, was very impactful for me because I found Mm -hmm. them to be very intelligent people. So I wanted to hear what they had to say about everything. And they, it was, it was all about just, if you do the work and you're fair to others and you earn your keep, then that makes you a good person. And I don't know, it's, it's hard to explain, but to me, media was the diversity I got for a long time. Now in my school That's system, cool. I had a lot of, you know, I, I had diverse friends and, but those initial lessons came from them simply watching television. And, um, it, yeah, it was, it was really educational to see them have equal, equal entertainment. Didn't matter if you're funny, you're funny. Doesn't matter who you are.
2: Y'all are both very introspective. I love how thoughtful you are.
1: <laughs> are you kidding me? You are the most introspective
2: guest that we have ever had. Oh my God.
0: <laughs> so for our
2: Probably this and chick is, she's really uh, deep.
0: <laughs> I love it. I, I'm like, can we just like take this to a wine night ladies? Like, can we just go right on over to the restaurant together and keep this going? I, I know, love right? That. Um, but if we all want solve find some out- problems, we can yeah, solve we some could. problems Absolutely. together. If you want to learn more about Allison, it's H A R E H-A-R-E.com. And you can follow her on Instagram as well at Allison, A-L-L-I-S-O-N, double underscore. Got it. Hair, H-A-R-E. Now, Allison, we're not quite finished yet. We, we t- talk about introspection. We got, ready? Introspe- we got, got more some, introspection. Oh, man. <laughs> Rapid fire questions for okay, you. Okay, I'm ready. First thing that comes to your mind, we ask all of our guests the Frenzy Five. Okay. Number one. Where is your
2: cozy, happy place? My bed.
0: (laughs) Do you have a really good comforter, like a down one that gets you No, it's like crappy.
2: It's crap. Like my husband (laughs) and I bitch about it all the time, but there's something about, there's something about like when you put your pajamas on at night and you know, like you take off your makeup and you're like, (gasps) and just getting in the bed when everything is done feels like a productive day. Number two, what's your
0: favorite framed thing in your home?
2: Oh, um, oh, uh, a picture of my husband and I in Crog Street Tunnel. Oh,
0: oh,
2: number three, what's your most memorable birthday? Um, uh, this last one, this last one. Cause it was beautiful.
0: Oh, so cool. Can you give us a little tidbit on what
2: happened? Well, I think it's because the year before was awful. (laughs) So I was so afraid of it. I had torn my ACL. I just was on like a, an eight hour work meeting that I didn't, I hated the job too. (laughs) It was just Mm. awful. Um, so this one was just so thoughtful and, um, you know, like my kids, uh, my husband took my kids to, um, make, Tea mugs, like I drink tea. And so they made some mugs for me. Um, it was Aww. just so thoughtful yeah. and beautiful. Yeah, yeah it was adorable. nice. Number four, what's a daily routine or ritual you stick to? I write in a journal every morning.
0: Awesome. Every morning. And number five, what fashion trend did
2: you jump on in um, era. Oh, uh, crimped hair. I'm from New Jersey. The
1: crimper. crimper. I remember the crimper. (laughs) We talked about hot rollers, but I forgot about the crimper. Oh yeah.
2: It's just disgusting.
0: Fantastic. (laughs) Allison, I'm so excited to connect
2: with you and I hope you'll come back and join us again. It was a pleasure. Anytime. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you.
0: And we're subscribers now to the Culture Changers podcast. Is there a friend of yours who would enjoy this episode? Please share this with her. And on Apple Podcasts, here's what you do. You click on the three dots at the top right corner, and then in the drop-down menu, select Share Episode, and then you
1: can share it however
0: you want. The green messages option will let you text it right to a friend.
1: We would love for you to also sign up for our weekly email where we send the episode right to your inbox. We make it very easy for you. We also include links on things we discuss and give you some deeper insights to the topics that we cover. And it's how you can also get into our private Facebook group by signing up at The Friend frenzy.com today.
0: And if you are enjoying the frenzy podcast with Melissa Carter and me, please subscribe on Apple podcasts or wherever you are listening to podcasts and leave us a review that helps us more than you can
1: imagine. And we really want to reach more people just like you. And here is your reminder as I mean, this is the most important thing we do, right, is to help you share your story. That's the point of all of this. Open up about your story with trusted friends. Your story absolutely matters.
0: Please follow the frenzy on Instagram. That's at the frenzy with a ZY at the end of friend. If you want to share about the show, tag us so that we can repost it. And thank you.
1: We are everywhere, okay? We're accessible to you everywhere because we also are on YouTube. We have a Frenzy yes. YouTube channel. We finally have a vanity URL, the whoop Frenzy whoop Podcast. Whoop. So please go to our YouTube channel and you can see some extended interviews, see some bloopers, see what we look like. If you don't know what we look like, uh, again, the YouTube at YouTube, the Frenzy Podcast.
0: So exciting.
1: The Frenzy is hosted and produced by Melissa Carter and me, Jen Hobby. Sound editing by Bo Johnson. Original soundtrack produced by Tammy Hurt for Placement Music. Written and recorded by Mark Daniels. The Frenzy celebrates
0: friendships over 40. Thank you so much for spending your time with us. We love your friendship. All right,
1: until next week, trust your guts, share your story, and and stop
0: lying about about your age. age?
1: (laughs) (laughs) We'll see you on Monday.